Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 11 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad, the history podcast based on the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, written back in the 1840s. My name's Ed Hill. So we're moving on at quite a fast pace now in William's journey. Just as a quick recap William leaves London to journey down to Italy where he's going to be an engineer on one of the first steam railways in Italy. So he's on his way at the moment by stagecoach or diligence from Paris to Lyon. So he's going relatively quickly, I suppose, in terms of, well, I think a diligence went at about approximately about eight miles an hour, according to the notes that I've made previously. So, um, It's obviously a few days' journey. I don't know what the actual distance between Paris and Lyon is. 289 miles, or 465 kilometres. So I suppose, as usual, I ought to say other ways in which you can get involved in the podcast, if you so wish. There's the Twitter page, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour, the number 3G Grand Tour. And there's also a Facebook page now, um, which I've only just started, so it's a bit in the, in the early days yet. But by all means, do log on to that as well. And that's at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. So um, hopefully you can find those on the interweavy web. And by all means, if you want to message me on either of those two platforms, please do. Also, please subscribe to the podcast It's available on all good podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever it is, TuneIn, YouTube. You cannot move for the number of places where it's available. And there's a website as well, so an Acast website as well. So if uh, if you Google it, I think the Acast website comes up as well. It's all there for your listening pleasure. So just thought I'd say a little bit about this episode coming up. William's travelling from Paris to Lyon. At the end of the last episode, he'd just got to Lyon. And in this next episode, he talks a little bit about being in Lyon. And then he then moves on to make his way to Savoy, the country or state of Savoy, because at that time, I think it was well, sort of a dukedom actually under the power of the kingdom of Sardinia, but... It's a sort of separate country at this time, and he goes on to talk a little bit about its history and so forth. Now, on reflection, looking back on this episode that struck me reading the journals, is that, as I'd mentioned before, obviously William himself is doing exactly the same thing as me. He's looking into reference books, and he's obviously been to these places. So the journals are a mixture of his writing about his actual experiences on the journey and then going back and obviously looking at some reference books about the places he's been to and the history of those places as well. And one thing that slightly puzzled me thinking about this, because this is something that I mentioned in the introduction episode, the research and everything that I did when I was originally transcribing the journals into type and also now subsequently doing doing the podcast, from my point of view, is ridiculously easy i can click on a website and virtually instantly get that information but i just thought william's obviously getting a lot of knowledge and it's just how on earth is he doing it he's obviously going to reference books himself and stuff bearing in mind he's writing this out in mexico so he's out in mexico he's obviously made notes at the time when he's 
doing his journals, but he must have then subsequently looked into these Eshrenov's works. I think I might have mentioned this earlier. There's a particular passage when I was transcribing that he'd word for word, I think he's when he's describing the island of Hispaniola. Hispaniola, that's a good word, isn't it? A nice word, Hispaniola. And he'd done this little intro. It's just the first paragraph sort of giving the basic facts and figures about Hispaniola. Hispaniola. And miraculously, the actual extract from some reference work at the time came up when I researched it. And I looked at it and, yes, he'd taken this opening paragraph. Hispaniola is an island in the Atlantic, blah, blah, blah. Its biggest mountain is such and such. Facts, mate, facts. And then he then goes on to write his actual account of his wanderings around the capital city of where he's landed and stuff like that. So describing in detail the pavements and or lack of them and stuff like this. So he'd, he'd obviously just literally copied this bit from this particular reference work. But it just did cross my mind where he was getting all this information from when he is writing this out in Mexico. And I I just thought, well, was there anything like the Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that at the time? And, of course, just looking it up, the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica was in 1768. It was actually published in installments, and the first bounded three-volume version appeared in 1771. So it's a good 70 years before William's writing. And obviously, actually, in his own journals today, he does mention the library and Leon having 92,000 volumes. So obviously, there were plenty of books around to reference. But I suppose it's more the element of time, I think, that it must have taken him. It must have been really quite a task to have written them, have done the research that he did at the time. Unless he is the brainiest man in the world and would get every single question on Mastermind correct... <laughs> he must be using reference books and um, just made me think what a task it was actually writing these journals because as I say for me a lot of the information is just a click or two away with the aid of the the worldwide interweb and associated electronic media it's just really an observation that I thought I should just mention because in this episode because of the various things he's talking about and facts and figures and history that he's talking about became very apparent how lengthy a process that would have been. So what point are we at the journals? We're now at the point where he's in Lyon and he begins by describing a little bit about the history. I have added to his history about Lyon at the time of the French Revolution. I've gone on quite a lengthy explanation of that. You know, if you do get bored, just move the cursor on a bit. I don't mind. The trouble is... Certain elements of history, they are very, very complicated. And as William does, and as I'm doing, I'm often summarising and generalising about things just to help with the brevity of the explanation. And I'm not a professional historian. And so sometimes I'm sure people are out there listening saying, oh, he's got that wrong or that wasn't right. And in a way that unfortunately that is very much a result of sometimes having to condense history so much and in a way this example of the siege of Lyon that I talk about is very much like that I can't say I'm really very happy with my explanation of it and as I've said before sometimes these things it is just better to look it up yourself because it's all out there but I, I hope my initial interest in it and feeble attempt at uh, explaining stuff at least might spark your interest I must say one of the benefits of doing this podcast aside from driving my wife up the wall with it in frustration <coughs> and having to uh, ignore the kids' upbringing, is that it has been a great exercise in just learning knowledge. And, gosh, I'm just going to do a nice little callback, I think comedians call it, to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Because, unbelievable as it may seem now, when the Encyclopedia Britannica was first published... It was very controversial, and the main controversy about it was that it was giving people knowledge. And as they say, knowledge is power. It's just actually a fundamental pleasure, isn't it, in life to learn about things, I think. Whether it's a skill, a craft, or just stuff in your head. And it was described, the Encyclopedia Britannica, when it was first published, was described by someone as the Gospel of Satan. And people like doctors hated it because it undermined their authority. And now they could pull the wool over people's eyes and say, oh, I know about this. And you don't. Let's face it, the more you know, 
the better equipped you are to deal with life and not be tricked by scammers and all sorts of things. And maybe politicians even, or whatever it is out there. Knowledge is power. And getting on my high horse here, but this has been one of the real benefits of doing this podcast for myself. And I hope those listening to it are enjoying it from this perspective as well. Is just how empowering and interesting and rewarding it is to learn stuff and know about stuff. It's good. And the more you know about stuff, the more you can tell other people about it and the more they can learn about it. And so hopefully that's what these podcasts will inspire you do to do as well. So there we are. Ah, God blow. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get as um, preachy about uh, <laughs> the joys of education. It may be the frustration of dealing with my own children and trying to persuade them about the benefits of education. Maybe that's what subconsciously that's why this has all, all suddenly come out now. Can't you just learn stuff and not look at TikTok? What do the people on TikTok know? Have they looked at an encyclopedia ever? Oh, dear. That's why things like Wikipedia are so great as well. And what the internet should be about and not about a lot of the, the rubbish that, unfortunately, it seems to have evolved into. Okay, sorry, back to the journal. So William is in Lyon and he's about to carry on his journey through Lyon and through Savoy, making his way towards the Alps and the crossing of the Alps. This episode will end just as he's beginning that journey over the Alps. Hope you enjoy. The old part of the city contains a number of dark, narrow and ill-paved streets. The houses are seven or eight storeys high and built solidly of stone. In the modern part of the city, the streets are wide and spacious and the houses very handsome. There are 54 public squares, some of them well laid out and planted with trees and adorned with fountains. The monastic grounds and gardens have been mostly covered with buildings since the revolution, which has added greatly to the embellishment of the city. Amongst the principal buildings is the splendid Hotel de Ville, next to that of Amsterdam, the finest in Europe. The Palace of Commerce and the Arts connected with which are lecture halls where various courses of lectures are delivered, and also the School of Design, which has made more progress than any other institution of the kind. The vast prefect house, which was formerly a Dominican convent, has a very extensive garden open to the public. The principal hospital, or Hotel Dieu, one of the noblest establishments in Europe. The Gothic Cathedral of St. John, whose architecture and profusion of ornament carry you back to the age of Charlemagne and Clovis. There is an observatory erected on an elevation to the north of the city, and on the hill of Houvert is a general cemetery adorned with trees and shrubs and vast numbers of handsome tombs laid out by command of Napoleon in 1808. Lyon also contains one of the finest libraries in France, consisting of 92,000 volumes. Amongst its scientific and useful institutions are a royal college, medical and theological schools, an academy of science, literature and the arts, agricultural, linean, so that's taxonomy, scientific classification really, the process of organising and naming scientific phenomena. I suppose the, the periodic table perhaps could be called a taxonomy. It's quite a hard word to define taxonomy, but it, it basically means kind of organising of things and structures into kind of names for scientific reasons and other reasons. Computer software and things these days. Look it up in the dictionary and see if you can understand it. Because <laughs> I can't explain it very well. Medical law. Bible and other societies. A Mont de Pieta. So that's a, a mount of piety. It's a kind of... It's a sort of charitable pawnbroker. Savings banks, etc. The commerce and manufactories are also extensive. The most important article is silk, the manufacturers of which are celebrated all over the world for their fineness and beauty. Silk and woolen and silk and cotton goods, beautiful shawls, crepe, silk hose... Gold and silver lace are among the products of her industry. A great proportion of the silk raised in France and great quantities imported from Italy are wrought up here, the silk raised in this neighbourhood being remarkable for its whiteness. Printing and the book trade is also extensively carried on from the press of Corman and Blaine, number one Roger de Roger. Great quantities of English and American works have been published, 
as well as others in the Greek, Latin, Hebrew and Oriental languages. Paper hangings, the manufacture of glass, jewels, artificial flowers, hats, etc. give occupation to numerous hands. So I just thought I'd talk a little bit about the various things that uh, William has mentioned in this passage of the journal. Just briefly to say that the Hotel de Ville, which he describes as being very grand, is still there. It's now a hotel, like many of these uh, former grand buildings uh, around the world, really. But um, it does have a impressive bas-relief sculpture of Henry IV on the front of it. It's quite a grand-looking building. And equally, the Hotel Dieu, which he describes, that has now also been turned into a hotel. It was a former hospital uh, on the site it sort of dates right back to medieval times and apparently initially uh, it was where travelers and the clergy actually for some reason initially kind of used it as a place to convalesce but uh, then it became a hospital it's a rather grand but thin looking building on the riverfront there in leon on the Seine or rhone one of the two <laughs> don't know which point of the river it's on but like the hotel de ville it was operational as a hospital until fairly recently, until 2010. But uh, it has subsequently been turned into a luxury hotel again. So um, despite these buildings being both described as UNESCO heritage sites, the chance to turn them into money-making uh, hotels seems to be the best option to uh, secure their future. I also said that I'd mentioned this Mount of Piety thing. I mean, there's not a huge amount to say about it other than what I said before. A mounter party is basically a pawnbroker's but set up in such a way or run by rules that are much more favourable for the lendee. Is that the right word? The borrower. <laughs> yeah, for the borrower and not so favourable for the lender. And it was uh, an idea that was originally began in Italy by the Catholic Church to kind of set up an institution to avoid usury or loan sharks or money lenders who charged exorbitant amounts of uh, interest for giving out their loans to the poor. This was seen as a way of setting up an institution that would be much more easier and less exploitative for people to borrow money. But there was a pawnbroking element of it, so the borrower would leave some valuable item usually jewelry they've kind of died out around most of the world but there are a few places where they still exist funnily enough in mexico they exist and in fact their growth in recent years has expanded they're sort of run by the government in mexico they've opened up more and more branches around the country in mexico and um historically the churches actually came up with quite interesting ways to gain capital themselves to be able to make the loans so um, they would charge the uh, the money that was uh, for example paid in fines and things it has to be said looks like people from the upper and middle classes who were fined for some egregious act that they'd done that fine money often went to the amount of parties capital and um, also they sort of set up days like Monday day where contributions were made to the church but actually it all went to the resources of the amount of party so um, in a way, it sounds like quite a good idea. There we are. That's a mount party. It is basically a pawnbroker that's run along lines with much lower interest rates than traditional pawnbrokers or banks or other institutions that lend money. Lastly, I've really tried to find some history of this company that he mentions, Corman and Bain, because I kind of thought it was a bit odd, a uh, printer in France publishing books in English and American. But despite doing lots of digging and research, I've just had absolutely no luck in finding any reference to this company anywhere, at least on, on the internet. So a little bit frustrating that I couldn't find any more information about that. But <laughs> strangely, there is now a publisher's in Lyon, a modern publisher's, Livre de Lyon, that does actually publish foreign language books as well. So... How many years later is it? 140, whatever we are talking about. 180. There's another company doing similar thing, but unfortunately I can't find any reference to this Corman and Blaine company.
Lyon has also an extensive transit trade of provisions and foreign goods for the southern cities, and the oil and soap of Provence, and the wines of Languedoc for the northern. Numerous and extensive warehouses and docks facilitate the great commercial operations of this queen of eastern France. The Lyonese are industrious, prudent, acute, intelligent and honest. The time of the foundation of Lyon is uncertain. Augustus Caesar made it the capital of Celtic Gaul, which received the name of Lugdunensis. In the reign of Nero, it was burnt to the ground. In the 5th century, the Burgundians made it their capital. In the 12th century, the sect of Waldenses was founded by Peter Valdez, a merchant of Lyon. So he was um, also known as Peter Valdo, and that was a, a non-conformist sect, apparently the forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. So uh, if you want to look into them. There's a lot of these religious sects that are started by one person and uh, they're quite often referenced in the journals. There'll be more later, so uh, hold on to your hats, folks, for those. Italian fugitives who came to seek refuge from the rage of party in their own country in the 13th century brought with them their arts and riches. Lyon suffered much during the religious wars of the 16th century and was just recovering from its losses when the revolution of the 18th again covered it with desolation. The citizens having risen against the terrorists in their municipal government and the Jacobin Club of May 29, 1793, the convention sent an army of 60,000 men against the devoted city, which after a brave resistance of 63 days was taken. Jean-Marie Collet de Hebois and Georges Couthon erected the guillotine on performance and dissatisfied with the slow method of execution, massacred the citizens in the crowds with grapeshot. The fortifications and many buildings were demolished. The name of Lyon abolished and that of Ville of Franchi, which means liberated city, substituted for it. In 1814, it was the theatre of several bloody actions between the French and the Allies. Lyon is 98 leagues southeast of Paris and 66 northwest of Marseille. Population of city and suburbs, 210,000. So I'll... Stop here again to explain some of what's been mentioned in this previous section by William. The Rage of Party was a period of history after the Glorious Revolution, around about the late 1600s in the UK. There was a weird kind of law that was brought in that they had to have elections every three years in this country. And it's a bit hard to explain really other than to say that in political terms I mean the whole voting system in the UK or in Britain at this time was corrupt anyway you'd have rotten boroughs where there were literally only six voters I think uh, famously Rutland was a rotten borough where there were actually only six voters who could then send a member of parliament to the house of commons and those who were entitled to vote or qualified to vote you know they had to own property women weren't allowed to vote Universal suffrage was a long way off. It was rife for exploitation. But amongst the upper and middle classes who did qualify to vote, you had the Whig and the Tory parties. And um, it just seems to be, um, with all these elections at the time, politics became quite extreme at this time. And it did lead to a certain amount of social unrest. And sometimes things would kind of get out of hand and there'd be quite a lot of violence in these political meetings. And I think there may have even been a few deaths. So basically, uh, when William refers to this Rage of Party and the people leaving is it Italy, I think you just describe it as a period of political unrest and violence, really, but uh, not of huge significance in the sense that it would probably be enough for you to think, maybe I don't want to live around here anymore with this going on. And I suppose if you were felt that you were on the wrong side of whatever political movement was in the ascendancy maybe that was a reason to leave the country moving on to william's very brief summing up of the events that happened in Lyon during the french revolution it is very complicated and to be fair to him in praising and summarizing the events that happened it doesn't do too bad a job it's just the fact that in a way it's details that he gives are so little that it doesn't quite convey why there were these um, massacres that he mentions and people killed by grape shot and stuff so I thought I'd try and just give a little bit more background to, to what happened in Lyon at that time just so it sort of illuminates a bit more what William's referring to really 
I myself am having to make massive generalizations to give a bit more of insight into it, but that's all you can do when you haven't got the time to go into too much detail. To kick off, I think basically what we could say is that at the time of the French Revolution, Lyon was the second biggest city in France after Paris. So, you know, it was quite a big deal in terms of what happened in the city politically as against what was happening in Paris. Paris was very much leading the things that were happening. And in some regard, the people in charge of the French Revolution, the, the National Convention, they kind of had a, a sort of attitude that what was good for Paris was good for the rest of France. And uh, you can imagine in Lyon, this wasn't necessarily the case. Just to give you some background, Lyon, in terms of its own industry, as William mentions, the book trade was one thing that had been going on there a long time. But the silk trade was actually its most important commercial activity. And this was mainly because at one time, way back in the 1500s, in 1540, King Francois I, he gave Lyon the monopoly of the silk trade. So any silk that was being imported from wherever, from the Far East or other parts of Europe or from around the world, had to go through Lyon. And Lyon itself had a big silk weaving trade as well. So I think at some point there were nearly 10,000 weaving rooms of silk in Lyon itself. And this was mainly to help fuel the desire for fine clothes and finery that the French aristocrats were demanding. So the silk trade was massive in Lyon. But by the time of the French Revolution, and partly because of the French Revolution, demand goes massively down. There's great hardship from the former silk trade workers in the city, and they're not very happy. But also, at the same time, the whole French Revolution is kicking off in Paris as well. So I think to very broadly summarise it, Lyon, despite people being disgruntled and not being happy, Lyon was a less radical city than Paris. And politically, it, you could say it aligned itself with a political group in France called the Girondists, who were the more moderate people involved in the French Revolution and really ideally wanted a constitutional monarchy and they were opposed by the Montagnard or Mountaineers group and they were the more extreme people involved in the French Revolution and wanted a much more radical clearing out of French society which ultimately led to the execution of the king. So there were these two opposing political groups involved in the in the French Revolution, in the running of the French Revolution, and they were constantly sort of at odds, and sometimes Girondists were in the ascendancy, and sometimes the Montagnards were. But broadly, Lyon is a more Girondist-inclined city, and not as radical as what's going on in Paris. And various incidents happen and rest in Lyon, and protests against what's going on in Paris. So it gets to the point where Paris decides that Lyon is a city in rebellion and they want to make an example of it, which I suppose is something which they wanted to do to impose their power over the rest of France. And so the National Convention, which is the government, the revolutionary government in power in Paris at the time, decide they're going to essentially attack Lyon, punish people who have resisted its laws and pronouncements and so forth. And so they get the army of the Alps, the French army of the Alps, to lay siege to the city. And this is the siege that William refers to, the 60 days, I think he says, where they resisted. And they also send various characters down from Paris to take charge and make an example of the city. And it's pretty bloodthirsty. I think the three main characters you could say are, and William refers to two of them, Georges Couthon, he was originally sent there to kind of sort Lyon out and um, part of his remit was to destroy the posh houses in the city and the property of the middle class people who'd resisted the National Convention in Paris. There was another quite interesting character called Jean-Marie Collard de Hebois. He originally had actually been an actor and a playwright and had travelled around France before the French Revolution, but when it all kicked off, he made his way back to Paris and became this much more radicalised political person, and he got involved in politics and wrote various books that uh, became popular with people with revolutionary ideas, and uh, he was, again, on the National Convention. He was one of the members of the National Convention. He was sent down, and the other character who William doesn't mention was Joseph Fouché, and he 
His actually sort of nickname because of what happened in Lyon was also known as the Executioner of Lyon. And basically, George Cousin didn't really have the stomach for what he was required to do in in Lyon in terms of destroying all the architecture and killing lots of people. So he gave up on the task, and so they replaced him, the National Convention replaced him with Jean-Marie Collant de Herbois and this Joseph Fouché to carry out these task which they did quite ruthlessly and this is where William is referring to these various instances in terms of people the guillotine and that not being fast enough executions not being fast enough and people being killed by grape chop I mean there's one instant that Fouché and this is how he got this reputation as being the executioner of Lyon in one instant 60 men were chained together and lined up in front of a cannon and then shot with grape shot now, the truth of the matter was that this really wasn't a very effective way of killing people. It was a good way of maiming and dismembering and terribly badly injuring people to the point where they were nearly dead, but it didn't actually kill them. So after they'd been shot by this great shot, the poor soldiers then had to go around literally finishing them off with sabres and guns and things, mainly sabres. So And even the soldiers couldn't stand the bloody task that was set before them by Fouché and... Anyway, the streets were meant to be running with blood to the point, <laughs> to the point, this is rather odd, to the point that the people who weren't being executed, and I suppose for some reason, thought that they were okay and not subject to be one of the victims, would started complaining and wanted compensation <laughs> about all the terrible mess that had been created. <coughs> anyway, it's all terribly bloody. By the end of it all, Nearly, very nearly 2,000 people have been killed in this act of trying to quell the rebellion in Lyon by the National Convention. And, of course, subsequently, what happens is the National Convention get wind of how Fouché and uh, Colotte de Herbois have actually taken their task too enthusiastically and been rather bloody in applying it all. And then, oh, well, well, we, didn't mean, we didn't mean you to go that far. So Colotte de Herbois and Chaser Fouché then have to return to Paris to um, explain and uh, justify why events turned out to be so bloody. Both Colette de Beauvoir and Joseph Fouché, I have to say, are rather slippery characters. When Colette de Beauvoir returns to Paris, he's charged with um, various crimes due to what's happened in Lyon, but he sort of manages to talk his way out of it. And pretty well, Joseph Fouché does the same. Colette de Herbois, he um, later on tries to turn against Robespierre. Robespierre being the leader or the instigator of many of the things that had happened in the French Revolution up to this point. And after a reign of terror and all these bloody events had happened, there was a lot of recriminations between the various people and committees involved in the revolution. And um, so they're, they're basically all trying to pass the buck or avoid blame or whatever it is. So Colette du Herbois, who had been an ally of Robespierre, turns against him. And anyway, he manages to talk his way out of being <laughs> being um, executed for um, what happened with Leon and his role in the revolution in general. But as he is an associate of Robespierre's, he is then uh, banished to French Guiana, which is where he ends up dying of yellow fever. Joseph Fouché, if... Colette de Herbois was a slippery character. Perhaps Colette de Herbois used his oratory skills as an actor to um, persuade his accusers that he was innocent. But anyway, but if Colette de Herbois was slippery, Joseph Fouché is the epitome, I would say, of a kind of Machiavellian politician, constantly sort of changing from one side to the other and basically saving his own skin because after this... He's also, like uh, Colette Dubois, is embroiled in all the accusations and recriminations involved in the French Revolution. He, too, is one of the main instigators of trying to bring down Robespierre, probably as a way of saving his own skin. And uh, so he basically, Robespierre and all of his accomplices, end up getting guillotined. Somehow Fouché just seems to manage to, at every instance in French history when you think he should have had his comeuppance he seems somehow miraculously to um, survive it or even um, progress his career later on when Napoleon comes to power he is uh, in various important government roles he's also minister of police um, you could perhaps say in that role he I don't know it's a bit like Jay Hoover he had a uh, 
a way of controlling things and uh, he always remained close to power. In fact, Joseph Fouché is one of the few people who apparently Napoleon was a bit intimidated by. And I think quite rightly, Napoleon couldn't trust him as far as he could throw him, as they say. And um, he, uh, at various times in his career, Napoleon sort of had to deal with him in certain ways. Uh, at one point, I think you could say he almost paid him off not to be involved in government. He gave him a lot of land and a, made him a senator and gave him a big salary. So Joseph Fouché also became very rich. <laughs> so not only did he survive all these political machinations and possible threats to his own uh, life, even Napoleon thought the best way to deal with him was just to pay him off and get him out of um, political life. Even then, Fouché... Later on, when Napoleon's own demise was beginning to happen, he then did effectively turn against Napoleon and was involved in all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, he was negotiating with the British to um, come to some agreement. So, yeah, quite rightly, in a way, you could see why Napoleon didn't trust him. I think he did even, Fouché, even have ambitions himself to, at some point, become foremost political power in, in France or president or whatever it would have been. But... I would say what eventually happened was that when the Bourbon monarchy gets restored in France after um, Napoleon's defeated at Waterloo, a kind of new constitutional monarchy begins to form and Fouché is sort of sidelined. I think it was that point he might have tried to become prime minister or president or whatever, but the new Bourbon regime seemed to pretty well ignore him. But he, he survived all this time from right in the midst of the reign of terror and the horrors of the French Revolution right up to 1820, which is when he eventually died. And until all that time, he somehow, as I say, he was, I think, the supreme survivor, completely duplicitous, it seems to me, and very good at saving his own neck. I mean, this whole period of French revolutionary history is very, very involved and there are a lot of characters and you've got all these factions and all these various people like Robespierre, like uh, Colette de Havois, like Joseph Fouché and there's just an awful lot of um, political machinations going on where I think you could say the repercussions of the French Revolution are trying to be sort of sorted but as I always remember thinking back in my own levels it showed how kind of mad things were that Robespierre who was one of the main instigators of the French Revolution and leaders of it, ends up getting guillotined himself. So I suppose it is the prime example of um, how revolutions, in a way, can get out of control and very soon recriminations and plotting against each other and against those involved can uh, lead to the sort of events that happen. <laughs> but um, Joseph Fouché, a real slippery customer, no doubt about it. So, to sum up, the Siege of Lyon is the instant that William is referring to here. Because <laughs> I've been waffling on there. Lyon was not as enthusiastic about the revolution, despite its various grievances, and it kind of resists what's going on in Paris. Paris wants to make an example of it, and they send in the army and these characters such as uh, Fouché and Jean-Marie Collot de Hebois to act as the enforcers of their decrees and crack down very ruthlessly on various people who for whatever reason probably fairly arbitrarily i imagine are chosen as being uh, resisting what is desired by the national convention in paris so that's it. it did take a lot in explaining and actually it is a lot more complicated than really how i've conveyed it as well so to be fair to william uh, <laughs> If we was looking at his um, various history books himself at the time, no wonder he tried to paraphrase it and sum it up in a couple of lines, because <laughs> it is very hard. But you can imagine also, subsequently, after all these events, there was a lot of disgruntlement in Lyon against Paris. So this kind of set up a ongoing mistrust for the people of Lyon against the people or the rule of Paris. And that led to uh, later problems as well. But anyway, so that is it. I thought it, I kind of needed to um, explain a little bit more about it than what Will had said. Back to the journal.
Thursday, April 9th. Left Lyon at 11 forenoon, and just outside the city crossed the Rhone by a long and ancient bridge near which is the citadel, a large and strongly fortified structure. Our road lay for some distance through a thickly wooded country, apparently of a chalky and gravelly soil. We then began to ascend gradually, and reached Bourgogne, a large village about one, where we changed horses. About five in the afternoon we arrived at the frontier town of Yon. Yen. Built on both sides of the river Isère. The part on the north side belonged to France, and that on the south to Savoy, a province of the Sardinian government. As soon as we had crossed the river, we proceeded directly to the custom house to have our luggage searched and our passports examined and signed. We had only four passengers, my friend and myself, and two gentlemen residents of Turin. Our luggage they scarcely looked at, as we were merely passing through his Sardinian Majesty's territories. But the other two, being natives and residents of the country, underwent a most rigorous examination, and one of the gentlemen, who had purchased a number of books at Paris, found they were all taken from him, coming under a list of prohibited works in that country. After leaving your... Yen... We entered a narrow valley, where the prospect was much confined, but at the same time presenting some pretty views. The road lay by the side of a deep and narrow stream, sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other. A low but very firm wall built on the side next to the precipice, and towering mountains clad with vines on the other. The bridges that crossed the stream were of excellent workmanship and design. In fact, everything belonging to this remarkable road bore evident marks of that great man at whose command it was formed, Napoleon. More glowing praise for old Boney there and William. And uh, another example of the civil engineering that was extensively carried out in Europe under his uh, command. From the time of leaving your... Yen. Till the time we arrived at the tunnel, I counted 32 of those bridges, and the tunnel that I mentioned is about three quarters of a mile in length and cut through solid granite. We walked through it, and there were lamps placed at regular intervals. The effect was altogether exceedingly grand. Soon after I got into the diligence, I fell asleep, as there had been a great deal of walking during the day, and when, by stopping of the vehicle, I awoke, I was much surprised to find myself in a fine broad street with handsome buildings, and brilliantly illuminated with gas. This was Chambry, the capital of Savoy, and getting out of the diligence, I find my friend missing, and as I could not make myself understood, I was aware that it was no use asking questions, so I lit a cigar and patiently waited outside the inn. I had not been long in this situation before a young and pretty girl came and began talking to me. But as I did not understand one word, I was at as great a loss as ever. She, however, soon solved the difficulty by seizing me by the collar and dragging me along a number of dark passages and through an immense and gloomy-looking kitchen, and finally throwing open a door into a room well lighted. She did not let go her hold till she had firmly planted me on a chair by the side of a table on which smoked an excellent repast, amidst shouts of laughter from my companions. But at any rate, I was able to do justice to the good things set before me. Doing justice to his dinner there again, Will. I suspect the... Uh... Travelling companions had um, given the young lady a tip to uh, accost poor William <laughs> and drag him to his uh, dinner table. Chambry is the capital of Savoy. It contains a strong castle and a very fine ducal. That's a duke's palace. It is fortified by walls and ditches and watered by many streams which run through several of the streets. And there are also some fine fountains. There are piazzas under most of the houses, where people walk in the dry, in wet weather, the town being situated amongst mountains, and being subject to much rain. There are large and handsome suburbs, and in the neighbourhood are baths much frequented in the summer. In the vicinity are also excellent coal and iron mines. In 1742 the Spaniards made themselves masters of the place, but it was restored by the Peace of 1748. It was also taken by the French Republican forces in 1792, but they were dispersed in 1799, and they afterwards regained it in the year 1800, and remained its masters until the abdication of Napoleon in 1814. Chambry is seated on the confluence of the rivers Lesse and Aubonne, 
nine leagues northeast of Grenoble, 28 leagues northwest of Turin, population 12,000. Friday, April 10th. The diligence started again from Chambry at four o'clock in the morning, and I found the road very similar to what had been in the evening before, with the exception that the stream, on whose banks we had been travelling, was much broader. The banks lower and more rapid, the mountains also lay at a greater distance. In many places I saw goats and sheep feeding where I should have thought it impossible for them to climb. I also noticed a great many little villages and churches also perched about at considerable elevations and picturesque situations. About eight o'clock I found we must be approaching some large market town by the number of people and cattle on the road, which proved to be Epierre, the second town of the province. We entered into it by a fine long avenue of poplar trees, and on getting on to the place found a vast number of people assembled, it being the day of the annual fair. Cattle, horses, sheep, goats, agricultural property of every description, butter, cheese and eggs, the manufacturers of the country consisting of very coarse linen and woollen cloth also in considerable quantities. Nor was amusement wanting for the Savoyards. Drinking booths, shows and the famous Punchinello, it's uh, Punch and Judy, swings and roundabouts, etc. The dresses of the peasantry combined all colours and all fashions. The younger men in black and velvet jackets and unmentionables. So that's those um, tight trousers again. This time he's calling them unmentionables rather than inexpressibles. But anyway, <laughs> however tight these trousers are, you're not supposed to talk about them, I suppose, is <laughs> the, uh, the general consensus. You can see them, but you can't talk about them and unmentionables most profusely decorated with shining metal buttons, immense steeple-crowned hats with narrow brims, and a broad velvet band with an enormous buckle in front. The old men with long coats reaching down to their heels of very rough grey cloth, the major part of them appearing as if they had done duty for half a century at least. Hats very broad at the crown, and brims of two feet in diameter. The women clad in all colours of the rainbow, but red, green and yellow predominant, aprons of gay colours with large pockets in front, and all of them without any covering to the head. And here I may as well endeavour to give some description of Savoy, the country through which we was then journeying. It is a duchy of considerable size belonging to the Sardinian monarchy and bordering on France, Switzerland and Piedmont. The greater part of the duchy consists of lofty mountains and forests, alternating with deep and narrow valleys. The Grey Alps separate it from Piedmont. Mont Blanc, the loftiest mountain in Europe, is in Savoy. The Isran, the Little St Bernard, and Mount Sinus, over which an artificial road leads from Savoy to Piedmont. These days, these are um, major routes, usually road tunnels, that go from uh, France to Italy through these uh, mountains. So they've been built at this time, but uh, in William's time... People literally had to uh, climb over them to get from country to country. And uh, as you can imagine, it was a much more hazardous journey. Little St Bernard and Mont Sinis are also in this duchy, and many of the summits are covered with perpetual snow and ice. Savoy is watered by the Rhone, the Isère, Seine, and the Arve, and the Arc. There are also a number of lakes in the duchy, the southern side of the Lake of Geneva, de Bourget, like de Bourget, 627 feet above the level of the sea, and at its deepest measurement, 240 feet deep. The Lake of Annecy, 1,335 feet above the level of the sea, and 180 feet deep. There is also a very beautiful lake that we passed almost on the summit of Mount Cenis. The climate is very different in different provinces of Savoy. In the valleys, it is often the finest spring, when the high grounds are yet covered with deep snow. And indeed, we had proof of it in this day's journey, for at Espierre, the place where we breakfasted, everything bore the appearance of advanced spring, and before the day closed, we were amongst immense quantities of snow. The soil of Savoy is extensively stony and not favourable to extensive agriculture. It has a few plains, not of great extent, and some narrow valleys. The fertile earth lies in this strata on the rocks and is often washed away by the torrents. Game, the marmot, chamois and ibex are found in the mountains. Among the mineral productions are silver, copper, lead, iron, coal and salt. The Savoyards speak a mixture of French and Italian. They are honest, faithful, frugal and industrious. But poor, 
a circumstance which frequently causes them to quit their ungrateful soil for a subsistence, but they generally return with their earnings to their country. Most of the organ grinders and exhibitors of white mice, etc., in the streets of London are Savoyards. Savoy was under the Roman dominion till 400, belonged to Burgundy till 550, to France till 879, to Arles till 1000. I've got a note here saying the Kingdom of Arles was a merged territory of Upper and Lower Burgundy in medieval times. To Arles till 1000, when it had its own counts, and in 1416 was erected into a duchy. In 1792 it was conquered by the French and incorporated with France as the Department of Montblanc. It was partly ceded to Sardinia by the First Peace of Paris in 1814, and by the second in 1815, the remainder was given up to the rest of the Sardinian monarchy. Savoy has a superficial area of 3,750 square miles and contains 600,000 inhabitants. Now, uh, I wanted to make a comment here <laughs> about this thing that William mentions, saying that most of the organ grinders and exhibitors of white mice in London are Savoyards. And after the long previous description he said of how they leave Savoy to work in other areas of Europe that are more able to sustain them because of the poor soil and growing conditions in Savoy. Um, when I first read it, it sort of came across like uh, someone these days doing a six-month shift on an oil rig or something. You know? It's just the way he writes it. It's this sort of impression that it, you know, it's a sort of a profession that people do. Yeah, I've been doing the organ grinding and white mice game for many years. Yeah, yeah. I always do it every year. I go over for six months and uh, grind me organ and uh, throw in a few white mice. And uh, Bob's your uncle come back. Here are everybody happy. It's good money in it. What about all the UK based organ grinders back in Britain? Yeah, they come over here. Some of these white mice exhibitors, do you know how much they're feeding their white mice? One grain of rice a day. How can I compete with that? I mean, we just have different animal husbandry standards that we've got to adhere to. We can't compete with that, with these geezers coming in. One grain of rice a day, white mice. It's just not fair competition, mate. <laughs> it just sounds like it's a profession, you know. Organ grinding and white mice exhibiting. Now, as ever, this raised a bit of interest in my mind. I thought I'd do a bit more research into it. And, of course, there is a lot more history to all this than uh, you would at first think. But I'm indebted, I must say, here to a rather good lecture by a Dr Paul Simpson, an expert in human geography from Plymouth University in 2015, in which he goes into a lot of this history of street music and particularly focusing on the 19th century because, of course, there had been sort of minstrels and troubadours around forever performing music. But he had made a specific focus on the 19th century and he's obviously also used some texts on London life around that time as well. There's a book, what is it, London and the Street Poor. I'll, I'll look that up in a minute. Uh, anyway, in that, he's quoting that most of the organ grinders in London came from, we generally say Italy rather than specifically Savoy, but it does mention Savoy and it actually became increasingly seen as a real nuisance, all this music going on in the streets. It offended the upwardly mobile middle classes who now wanted to have nice quiet streets in London so they could get on with their work. The likes of Charles Babbage, who was the father of the computer. Was it called the Difference Engine? It's basically invented the first calculator, and he's often described as the father of the computer. A particular person is the brewer, Michael Thomas Bass, who now we're very familiar in pubs. You go into a pub and there's Bass beer available. He was a brewer and parliamentarian dating back to that time, and he was a particular driver of this act that eventually got passed in 1864 called the Street Music Act, which was to limit the amount of this music that was going on. It's a very interesting lecture this Dr Simpson gives, looking into the whole sort of social and class element of it as well. So um, indeed there was an element of, if you were a proper musician who could play something like a fiddle or a harp, and you had some genuine talent that was looked upon as being a step above your organ grinder who was just turning the handle to great music because there's no particular skill needed. 
But he's got a quote here from one of the people that's being discussed in Parliament and also various pamphlets at the time. And I think this is quite good to see how they're described. These Savoyard fiends or blackguards that smell of a combination of garlic and goatskin and live in overcrowded conditions in Saffron Hill. So to be a Savoyard organ grinder in London was pretty well being the lowest of the low in terms of the street population, <laughs> as it were. And another quote here. They introduce a certain vice from Italy and make the streets swarming with vagabonds. So they're not highly looked upon, these people. Not surprisingly, probably by the middle classes. But also, there was a much more unsavoury side of it. Because a lot of these um, Savoyards and organ grinders who came from Italy were trafficked, as it were, by what they call padrones, which is the Italian word for boss or master. So, you know, they were a bit like a gang master, but almost like a pimp, I suppose, who would traffic these Savoyards and sometimes or often starting as young children to places like London, Paris, New York and it was particularly often the children who were employed to do the exhibiting of white mice. I have seen a etching of a boy there and he's got a little cage in his hand and a mouse in the cage with a hamster's wheel type thing. Basically they were being exploited and with the organ grinders they'd often charge them money to have the organ grinder, the actual instrument, and also then for their accommodation and stuff. Sadly, very similar to the way that modern-day slavery happens today, isn't it? So to say that the people would then return to Savoy with their money, you know, <laughs> when I first read that, I kind of really gives the impression it's not its fault because it's just how I'm interpreting it, but it's like it was, you know, you made a load of money and came back to Savoy and you'd done all right for a year or two and before you had to go out and do the white mice and organ grinding trade again. But of course it wasn't like that at all. These people were exploited and it was actually a very, very poor hand-to-mouth existence. And I think there was a quote here. Hang on, I'll just try and find it. Um, not everyone was against it. Coming into the class thing, of course, you know, a lot of the working class liked the music that was being played on the street. So there was a certain antagonism between the poor of London who liked the music and street performers and the increasing middle classes who wanted to get rid of it. And we just try and find this quote. Hang on. The book is called London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew. But, uh, this lecture has taken quite a lot of its information from one of the backers of the bill says this. I conclude that the reason we all bear it in silence is that we think that if the law were to step in and abolish street music, the poor, honest and industrious class would be deprived of the means of living. In this, I imagine, lies our mistake. I am convinced that our legislature could not pass any measure of more genuine humanity and charity than one which would prevent the importation of those poor Italians into this country. They come with scarcely any exception to satisfy the greed of a few large speculators of their own nation. They are badly treated, ill-fed, and into the bargain, cajoled out of the greater part of their hardly won earnings before they return to their own homes, which many of them may never reach. So that sort of sums up there was this exploitation element to the organ grinding trade. So, like uh, many things, my initial response from something that Williams has written is uh, one of taking it on face value and then uh, when researching it a little bit more, you discover that actually there's a lot of interesting history, particularly social history about it. So, um, yeah, the poor old Savoyard fiend organ grinder smelling of garlic and goatskin, it certainly wasn't easy money. So that's where I'm going to end this episode for now, just as William is embarking on his next stage of the journey, which is actually the quite difficult and, as you'll discover, perilous traipse over the Alps. That's the, the next bit to look forward to. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. And as I've mentioned before, there are all those ways of getting in contact again, if you want, such as the Twitter page. 3G Grand Tour and also the Facebook page 
at Grandeur with my great-great-granddad. So that's really about it for this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. And I look forward to um, welcoming you to the next episode. So if you have been, thanks very much for listening. If you haven't been, doesn't really matter, does it? You're not going to hear me say anything anyway, are you? Anyway, please tune in next time. Thank you.